When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Food for Thought, a podcast gathers through in a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, <sighs> identity, Ooh. culture, <laughs> what we what we like, we're never going to get that right, what we like to read, <laughs> and who we like to read. Food for Thought, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Thank you. <laughs> the yes, Lord is the come. Lord is come. Okay. So I just have to admit that I have watched um, Single All the Way three times since our last record and three. Three, t- three whole times. And every time Jennifer Coolidge walks, like enters the movie singing Joy to the World, the Lord has come. All I can think about is the Lord actually being come. That's it. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> The Lord is kind. That's, Wait, Teebs, are you Teebs, Are you Bukaki curious? Um, I am. I, okay, I'm a little Bukaki curious. I don't like cum. I'm not a cum whore. I don't like that shit. It's viscous. <laughs> it makes me want to throw up. I'm. It's viscous, bitch. Yeah. Um, but I'm just like okay. I'm kind of obsessed with Bukakis because it seems like that thing that like virgins think people who do sex do, but they don't actually. It seems like such <laughs> a. It seems like such an invention so of porn that like it's it's a mm. novelty and it's not something that people actually participate in. And I'm like, is this a chicken or the egg thing? Like, did cor- porn create bukkakis mm. or was bukkakis in, like integrated into porn? And and also just like, okay, then maybe maybe not. But like, then are there like Grecian Asian Grecian urns with bukkaki scenes on them? The girls were like, that looks like fun. Let's try that. Like, how much does culture dictate mm. bukkaki? Dick. Dick. So dictate. wait. I, I'm not completely 100% sure that I'm clear on what Bukaki is, and I've never oh I've never God. clicked on a video oh that has well. Google it then. <laughs> Google it. Google Does it. Anybody I'm wanna, scared. Um, I'm scared. It's, it's just when one person receives the cum shot for a group of people, a large group of people, and they usually end up covered. Oh. Oh, I've always wanted to so try I, that. But... It derives from a Japanese term that, uh, like, means, like, splashing. I think it's also the name of, like, a food. Oh, my God. But it's, but it's been co-opted. I wow. I, um, so that's probably actually, problematic. I, but, oh, I would love to try that sometime. I have an interesting take on this because I actually just watched um, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's really dark but also really funny, really horrible, but also really light. It's called The Portrait of Jason. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's this movie by Cheryl Clark from 1967 that is just literally her and her film crew locking herself in the Chelsea Hotel overnight with a black gay man, uh, a hustler named Jason. Uh, and and it's capturing sort of all of his stories and then the interactions between them. Um, he is amazing. And one of the, my favorite things about the movie is that, like, you feel like you're talking to a person who's alive right now. It's like 1967 mm. and all the gay lingo and the snaps and the postures and the poses. And it, it just feels like so contemporary. And one of the, my favorite parts of the movie is, is he's, like, talking about all the things he does with, like, the the men that he sleeps with. And you're like, 
he literally basically describes Bukaki. He's like talking about fisting and water sports and the sauna and poppers. And you're just like, there was no porn video at that time, right? This is like 67. So I feel like that gays for thousands of years have been in- inventing <laughs> disgusting shit to do with one another. And it all, oh, yeah. It is just a tale as old as time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, I, you know, um, I have quite a warped brain right now because unfortunately, and I have not said this anywhere outside of Finsta, um, I haven't had sex since early September. Yeah. Mm. Um, travel, a series of scheduling flukes, now Omicron. Um, so I um, would love any sort of sexual contact. Omni, um, come on my Bukaki, face, Fran. Bukaki included. <laughs> and, you know, we did, you know, text about this earlier. And Joe, I believe, is going to organize a birthday Bukaki <laughs> sex party for yes, me. I am. Um, come April. It, it is come April indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Hate that. I, I told Fran that it was going to be in a fluorescently lit warehouse with nothing but <laughs> with nothing but white Gatorade and oh peanut M and M's as snacks. <laughs> Protein. Wow, that is my worst nightmare. My personal hell. I hate you for that. Maybe maybe some cheesy den style mac and cheese. Oh <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> you. Um, I have lots of. I, I cooked a duck for for the holiday this year, so I have lots of duck fat. So maybe I'll make um duck fat confit garlic that everyone can pop so their breath smells nice and 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 delicious oh my god you're out here casting purgatory that's what that sounds like (laughs) (laughs) terrible let's get into the bullshit shall we i'm tommy teebs pico indigenous american poet screenwriter tv writer and um i also haven't had sex since september but that's because i don't like people in my house so (laughs) (laughs) You are the Whoopi Goldberg meme. (laughs) I'm Fran. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. And um, I'll fuck you. I'm desperate. (laughs) If anybody... (laughs) Fran, your voice cracked like a teenager. (laughs) Fran is not lying at all. I'm so, I'm so unwell. I'm Fran, I'm a writer, editor, and do you want to make out is, is the tagline that I have for today. If anybody would like to make out, I'll need to see um, a negative COVID test uh, within the last, what is it, 72 hours? Uh, um, with, uh, with Omicron, 24, baby. 24. Um, and, uh, and other than that, I have no prerequisites. <laughs> thank you. Wow. <laughs> thank you. It's the thank you for me. Thank you. I am, I am Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer. And although Fran has asked, I will never omni-come on his face. Ah! <laughs> I... Slander. Don't know if that's true. Um, wow, Dan, <laughs> wow. I'm Dan Michelle Norris. I'm a reader and writer, former figure skater, and I'm going to politely excuse myself from this trash-ass show so I can go get bukkakied. Ew. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, who's got the menu today? For today's show, y'all, we are cha-ching, answering your questions from Penny for your thoughts, Um, we are going to take a little trip to the res and for dessert, Fran's got a little something special for us. Mmm, take it away. Polyps. (laughs) (laughs) 
buck, buck, buck. I'm feeling a little peckish. I think we should start the top of the show the way any good top should, with a little appetizer, our uproarious segment, Amuse Boosh. And to muse our booshes, Dan, tell us what we got. Cha-ching! Get out your coin purses, benches. It's time for Penny for Your Thoughts. Mm. Yes, our absolutely right. trash-ass advice segment that you should never take to heart. <laughs> I think I got it. I think I can click play now. Love. Let's listen. Hey, thoughts. Um, longtime listener, huge fan of the podcast, huge fan of each of y'all. Um, I just have a question that I'd like a penny for your thought on. Um, recently, I've been in, well, not recently, I've been in a relationship with a guy for about like a year or so. It's great. We're really emotionally compatible. Our friends get along. We kind of have a little bit of tension around families. Um, but nothing major. Um, it's really just that the sex is horrible, like so vanilla, not really sensual or intuitive in any way. And I can kind of get over that and just not have a very sexual relationship, but he needs to have sex, but the sex is just consistently so bad. I don't want to be having it. Um, any advice or thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Oh my. Oh no. Has anybody seen that Sex in the City episode when Samantha is finally dating a guy that she's like emotionally into and like it's the first time in a, a long time where she's like actually into someone she's like oh this is such a stable partner but his dick is too small. Oh yes. Yes, yes. I, she doesn't know if it's inside or not. <laughs> yes. Yes, and just, so the sex is like not satisfying but everything else is satisfying and like yeah, you know, I, I don't know what y'all think about this. I think that there are, there do, re, there there is a point at which your relationship can reach wherein it's like, oh, you actually really can't fulfill the needs that I have. But I do think that point is pretty far off from where these people are mm-hmm. right now. Like, mm-hmm. I think they have a lot of opportunity to communicate better about what works or doesn't work for them in bed. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, if, if you're not having, if you don't think the sex is good, that's something for your partner to know, mm-hmm. you know, obviously mm-hmm. not in those words, but like once, if you are comfortable enough, you know, fucking on the regular, you should be comfortable enough kind of interrupting that process or rather like uh, incorporating kind of communicative kind of like, I like this, I like that styles into you know, how you have sex until the sex is better. What do y'all think? Um, This person said that they, it's fine with them to not have a good sex life, but that the partner really wants a good sex life. And I kind of feel for that person because to be honest with you, if I'm like really into somebody, the sex can be bad and I'm fine with it because mm. I'm not bad at sex. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, like, you know, but I, I, that's not, I'm, that was a joke. But like, but I, I feel for that person because that, I could I could get down, I could have an unsatisfying sex life. But if like the person you're with doesn't, I mean, I also, there wasn't like a description of why it's horrible or like what's making it yep. horrible. I mean, they, they said it was not intuitive sex and that it was horrible. Sensual. Yeah. And <clears throat> to, to that, that makes it sound like, well, I mean, do, have you, done the talk where you say what it is you like and don't right. like i mean right. are yeah, you a f- that is the talk yeah like i i feel like 
I have to have that talk with people. I like knowing what turns somebody else on. I would prefer, you know, like talk that talk that Rihanna song. I feel that 100%. Like, let me know what you like. I'll do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, I really hope this person's partner doesn't listen to our show and doesn't recognize yeah. this person's voice, <laughs> like talking about it. So I think they've all made their risk assessments and <laughs> sending in voice me- them most. So I, um, should we distort their voices so they all sound super femme or super nice? <laughs> I don't know. I I really don't think anyone is bad at sex. Like, I just don't think that exists. I think everyone has, like, different tastes. And Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm a little confused about in this person's conversation, it almost sounds like this person resents their partner's sexual desire. It seems like Mm -hmm. the sex might be, like, the other person seems to enjoy sex. It's like, my partner really wants to have sex with me consistently. But it almost is like this person is, like, repulsed by that. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been in, in, in not boyfriend relationships but relationships that are a little like that it's actually really not nice for the person who doesn't know that you like your partner finds you kind of repulsive (laughs) like it's just not a good feeling um and i don't i i think like there are lots of i also don't think your primary partner needs to meet all of your sexual Mm -hmm. needs so i think that this person can imagine like a way in which he is in love with this person and also has some sexual needs met outside of the relationship. But it it really feels like there's like maybe a failure of imagination in addition to a failure of honesty between these Mm -hmm. two people. And I would just say out of like pure kindness and having been the person whose partner felt this way about me, like it's not a nice thing to say. Uh, but you basically have a couple options. You can continue lying to your partner consistently about how you feel about your physical interaction, or you can be honest with them and they may well decide that they don't want to be with you anymore because it's not nice to be with someone who's kind of repulsed by you sexually. Uh, and they're allowed. They actually are entirely allowed to make that decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know if repul. I mean, I think repulsion is a lot to project onto the (laughs) relationship. Projection, based on your previous experience, I think that's kind of a stretch. Thank you, Fran. Agreed. Um, Agreed. That involves your personal emotions (laughs) in the in the question. However, I agree. I agree with what you're saying overall, which is that it's a failure of the imagination to use this foreclosing language that the guy is Mm -hmm. using uh, to say like, oh, it's just not good. Like I think is sounds very finite and there's no, there's no, that's not helping anybody. Like Mm -hmm. you have to be using language and using a kind of mindset that is like building your sex life up, not trying to, you know, close that, close that up for shop. Yeah. Agreed. And I think what, what, what kind of Joe was hinting at, or maybe I picked up off the table, but it's also, if I'm fine, not having a, a great sex life and it's important for my partner to have one, you know, you either adjust your behavior or you can say like, have sex with other people then. That's kind mm-hmm. of what I would do. It's like, if I can't give this to you mm-hmm. and I don't want to, but I still want to be with you, then get it from somebody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a little bit of a different thing, but I, whenever I'm dating someone and we're thinking about whether or not we might want to be serious, one of the things, well, this is one of the conversations we often have to have if I'm dating someone who's more versatile because I'm total 100% bottom with no interest in topping probably ever. And so, and there's a lot of people with arrangements like this. I think the most important thing is sort of clear communication. I really like what Fran is saying about like avoiding foreclosing language. And it's just the idea that like, 
even when we're in relationships that are very tied to each other, we get to imagine different things for ourselves as individuals. And, you know, with proper communication, it's really great to be able to pursue those things. But I also think, I also think that like, if when the conversation goes towards like possibly opening up a relationship sexually that hasn't been open, I think that very often it's important for those two people to, to maybe have a foundation of like sexual compatibility because Mm -hmm. I think that that can get really complicated when it's like, we don't have good sex. So we both, or I, or you find sex outside of the relationship. Like, like there's a big difference between that and something where it's like, no, we do have really great sex, but our sexual tastes are limited as a couple and I have more expansive taste, for example, or, or, you know, something where it's like, I'm, I'm looking for more variety or more of this or more of that, but what we have is really great. Those are two very different dynamics that you have to negotiate. And I think that, um, that's part of where communication can be really, really key in figuring out how you want to handle it. I get, I get, I get why this person doesn't want to talk to their partner. Yeah super openly because I, I think what Den is saying, those are two different things. I know relationships where they're not really interested in sex with one another, but love sex outside and it is not destructive for that relationship. And, I, and that works for them. And that's amazing. I actually have been in like dating scenarios where um, we were sexually compatible, but my needs weren't being met. And the other person was like, um, you know, it's fine with me if you get those met outside. Uh, and I ended up not liking that. Like I ended up not, and and it ended up be, that we weren't compatible to date. So anytime you're you open yourself up to these conversations, it could be that the other person doesn't want them. Yeah. And so I get this person. It seems to me that this person is really afraid of losing what they have. But I feel like unless this person communicates more openly, they for sure will lose what they mm-hmm. have because it's going to fall apart at some point. <laughs> it's like a fucking house of cards that could be like sneezed on with Omicron and go down in two seconds. Mm. Yeah. So it- yes. Yes, like your fear is justified. You might lose your relationship by being more honest about what you think the dynamic is, but you will lose the relationship, I think, if you're not honest about what the dynamic is. Yeah, it sounds like this person's reticence to say something is because they are projecting a breakup onto this situation if they do open it up. And it's like, maybe imagine a couple of different scenarios. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Both about the sex inside of your relationship and about what could happen with opening it up. Good, good luck. luck. Butt fuckers. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. It's time we get to the meat of our conversation. The thought process spelled T H O T. T H O T. T H O T. And uh, to sling our beef barbacoa. Who do we got? Who's who's got this? It's one? me, baby. It's me. Uh, it's Ho over here today. It's a really special episode of Food for Thought that I've wanted to do all season, where we get to give a little love and a lot of attention to our beloved thought, Tommy Teeps Pico. I both, um, like, hate attention and crave it, so... Teams uh, uh, has been the one pushing off this episode week by week by week, and finally was <laughs> like, we're fucking doing it. Look, in my little neck of the woods, it's really rare that anyone you know gets to make a piece of art or entertainment that's seen by millions of people. So when Tommy moved from humble poet Brooklyn to the bright lights of Hollywood, I was so excited for him. And I have to say, I've never been prouder of anything than how hard I know Teeps worked to get booked into his first writer's room, how many sample scripts and meetings and writing things on spec and like years of hard work. And I want, 
And what I heard Teebs was booked on Reservation Dogs as his first job in a writer's room, in an all-native writer's room with an all-native cast and crew, I genuinely cried. I couldn't wait to see the story told and to told that story told by these people. And Thotties, as I'm sure many of you already know, the show did not disappoint. I want to start off by asking if we could all talk briefly, including Tommy, about their absolute favorite episode from the eight episode first season. What did you guys love? Teeves, would you describe like just the show in a nutshell for people who are listening that maybe have never listened to it before? No, Reservation... I mean, sorry, people who are listening who have never watched it before? Yeah, basically Reservation Dogs is a story about four teenagers who are trying to beg, borrow, and steal enough money to get out of the res into the magical, mystical land of California. Mm-hmm. Um, but who... Because, you know they hate the place that they live in, but they actually kind of realize how special it is and how much they love it. Uh, I mean, echoing everything you said, Joe, also just so proud to watch, like, Tommy do something that is so true to the body of work that is Tommy Teams Pico. And even though there are so many people in this writer's room and just a, a lot of folks and minds that make this show happen, there is still a completely um, uncontestable presence of Teebs's voice oh in my the show, gosh. which what, I think is so beautiful. When I heard a joke, sometimes I would hear jokes, I'd be like, that motherfucking joke was Tommy Teebs Pico. Yeah, I would make my partner, yeah. I would like pause it. I'd be like, that's fucking Tommy right there. That's my friend. When he says, me, when he says, are they talking about me at Red Lobster? I was like, oh, yeah, that's my joke. Or when she was like, is that motherfucking bacon I smell? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Anytime there's motherfucking in, uh, yeah. Um, I, so actually, I want to reference, like, the way these characters talk, because that's something mm. that really stuck out to me, and I guess it leads to the answer to your question, Joe, about favorite episodes. Um, my mom's side of the family is all cattle ranchers in New Mexico and bumfuck Colorado, um, right along a lot of, like, reservations there. And my family grew up kind of in Española and areas around it where indigenous cultures and, like, reservations were, like uh, like, kind of imbued in kind of how they grew up. And so all of my aunts and uncles and my grandparents like talk like the way that a lot of these like kind of like Tia's and Tia's talk in Res Dogs. And that was so mind blowing to Mm -hmm. me because I've literally never in my life heard the kind of indigeneity of the Santa Fe accent on screen. Like I've just never heard that. It's, It's a very specific kind of like sing-songy kind of like uh, like it has like a scoop scooping to it that every time I hear it it just like reminds me of my grandma um but I love the episode where Uncle Brownie is trying to figure out what he's gonna do with this old weed it's so funny um I either and the reason I I love the way that like there's a lot of really good lines in that episode that are specifically funny because of that like accent mm. um it, like it just ha- it just like throws me immediately back to like my family and like things that we say to each other um but i loved that kind of traversing this constant traversing of how different generations of this of this group of people are kind of reconciling with you know how they're going to get their coin and like how they're going to stay relevant in like whatever whatever kind of society they're living in now. I just love that kind of conversation and how it, how it came before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joe, Joe's question is a really difficult one to answer because for me, more than like most TV shows I watch, I feel like Reservation Dogs, in my head, the episodes barely split up. Like it's so 
cogent yeah. as one piece of art that like in my head and watching it, it doesn't feel like I'm watching separate episodes. It almost feels like I'm watching one really delightful like film. So even, even so though true. like there's like, like each episode functions as an episode, but I would have to say that, that the uncle Brownie episode may also be my favorite episode. Um, partially because of the moment in between him and his niece, where she's like asking him questions about her mom, um, who she doesn't remember. Um, also because of the opening scene where the white people, um, hit that, hit the deer and the husband is all like, why do they want the land back? And she's like, shut up, stop being in this old white woman is like, shut up, stop being an asshole. And there's this thing where, white folks are often made to look really ridiculous in, in this show and in many shows, but I loved that aspect of it. It was just really entertaining. Um, but I have to say that sort of similar to what Fran said, when I watched the pilot of the show, like when I watched the very first episode, I texted Teebs right after, and I was like, there are so many moments in this that I felt like could not have come from anyone else and came from you. And it was really interesting because Teebs was like, actually, I didn't write in that episode. Like, I didn't write in the exactly. pilot. I was just going to say that. <laughs> um, but it goes to, I think it speaks to one, the seamlessness of the show. And also the way in which the people who are writing the show and creating the show know their community. Because I'll never forget, there's a moment where these kids are driving. The, it's like the Frito-Lay truck and it has flaming hot Cheetos on it. And I was like, there is no way that that came from anyone but Teebs who worships at the 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 hot Cheeto and in fact Teeps was like I didn't even write in that episode so <laughs> anyway I say that to say that I think episode number three is my favorite episode it's hard to say because um, they all run together for me but it's just it's just amazing it's incredible art and it's fun to sit in front of my TV and watch incredible art that my friend made um, I cry every time and um, I'm just really proud so yeah. I um I ha- I love the episodes where each character gets their own sort of whole arc and my favorite two are the hunting episode with Willie Jack um which is just like you actually it's it's I thought the those episodes were really well written because at first they seem kind of pointillistic like each episode is just like one character but then hmm. when you zoom out you see how each episode is actually also advancing the collective plot and I think that came together with for me um with the hunting episode where you start to um, uncover the the mourning that all these characters are doing, but not really actively talking about mm-hmm. um, for their friend who has, who, who died, they, they, which you know about from episode one. And it's sort of the undercurrent, and it's in the hunting episode with Willie Jack and her dad, where you start to see that that grief become real. Uh, and then it's just so fucking funny with like these white people putting up the cameras in the forest to like watch them and they're clowning each other. And, um, you know, the mix of humor mm-hmm. um, and deep grief, I think, in that episode. Uh, I just I watch that episode a lot. And then I also so love the one before that, which is um, Cheese going on the ride along with Big um, the sort of, uh, the reservation, the, the cop figure, although I would not ever call him a cop because I was going to say that he's yeah, like the only positive, uh, thing, only positive representation that I've ever seen of ev- anyone in the position of like anything like a police officer. Cause he's Long just person. like actually gives a shit about the community mm-hmm. that he's working in. 
Um, thanks. What about you, Teebs? What's your what's your favorite yeah, app? You, yeah. Teebs, you've been pretty silent. You're probably having a brain aneurysm right I'm now. I'm fully um, trying astral. To, trying, I can't have trying to contain about. compliments. Yeah, um, <laughs> talking about your work. The, it was an interesting room to walk into because, you know, the world. Like, I, I I get what you're all saying about it being reflective of me, but I, episodes one, two, three, and five were already written. They mm. before we got into the room. Um, it had already been cast like we were we got to see some of the audition tapes and so we got to hear the voices and we knew kind mm-hmm. of who we were writing for but the world was already articulated when I stepped into the room well the zoom room I didn't it wasn't actually physical um and I just felt so lucky to have that job and it it um I I don't think if we knew how much exposure it would have gotten if we would have been able to do it because I think we all assumed that it would be something small and that has an impact in Indian country and that's it. Because what there isn't Native American and especially res life pop culture. There isn't any. There isn't any. There has never been and there isn't any. And we knew that we were representing kids or writing for these teenagers who don't grow up with anything that looks like them anywhere. We do have culture, but it's not popular culture. You wouldn't hear it in a grocery store. You wouldn't see it on a magazine rack. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see it on your fucking Roku. There's nothing that exists that dictates that, or that, that, that talks about reservation life from the point of view of res people written by res people. And, you know, in looking at what that dearth of pop culture representation means is that like, it's not like innate res pop culture ends up becoming co- a cobbled together sort of Frankenstein's monster of all popular culture. Um, mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it gets its title from a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know, and there's Willow and there's honky tonk and there's country and there's hip hop. And it becomes a um, emblematic of American popular culture. It like American popular culture gets distilled in this really, interesting way mm-hmm. and because because there's not anything out there that looks sounds talks like us then then every time you get a little bit of something that gets distilled from popular culture you kind of you you start to mold this thing out of it and mm-hmm. I, I I I don't I think I'm I'm thinking a lot of this in sort of meta terms but it really meant something on Halloween and I, I didn't anticipate it that like mm. all of a sudden, all over Instagram, these kids were dressing up as characters that that we made, mm. <laughs> and that like that's never ever happened before, ever. Mm. And it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't until that moment that I understood what it was doing, and that like I can hear all criticisms all day, but when I looked at those kids. And I realized that the positive impact that it was having on the communities that we came from. And it was like, I bet there's just going to be kids who won't kill themselves. And I can't think of a better impression to have left on the world that I came from. And I had a lot of healing to do because we were all like all of the writers, Meg and Tazba and Bobby and Sydney and me and Sterling, you know, we all had Daniels. We had a lot of them. We had, I mean, 
to to accurately depict the amount of people in our communities who kill themselves or who die recklessly because they don't value their own lives is it would be too you wouldn't even be believable. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have just Daniels. I have Clarissa's and I have Stevens and I have Kevin's. I have so many of them. And it working on the show and in the room and with those people, people who had complicated relationships to the place that they came from, the way that I have a complicated relationship to the place that I came from, it really healed me a lot to be with those. Because, I mean... I left the res at 18. I was a Laura Dannon. You know what I mean? Like, that was me. I was like, I have to get out of here. This place eats people. And I think I just had so much grief about losing people. And it's just, it's an, being raised on the res is not like being raised any other place. I can't express the kind of depression and endemic poverty and um, hopelessness that comes along with growing up in a place like that. But it also is a place of astounding dreams and a, a lot of really talented people who whose talents aren't ever going to see the light of day. I was by far not the smartest or the best or the funniest uh, of any one of my cousins growing up, but I had one single determination and that was like, I'm going to New York City. That was it. Like, that was New... I mean, I like the kids are all like, I want to go to California. And in California, I was like, I need to get to New York. But it wasn't just mm-hmm. because of the place that it came from, although, like, there were a lot of traumatic happenings, but also the area right outside of the reservation. It was incredibly homophobic and racist. And I just want to double mm-hmm. down on this fact. And people ask about me all the time about, was the res homophobic? No, no. There were people... I mean, everyone gets picked on for something. I happen to be femme. So like that got picked on, but it was never a prelude to violence. It was always a prelude Mm. to laughter. We were just roasting each other so that somebody called me, you know, fat girl or whatever. And I'd be like, well, Mm. did hook on phonics work for you? You illiterate bitch. Now, maybe that person had a learning disability and maybe I was, but I wasn't like, I don't, I didn't think I was being ableist in that moment. Mm. We were just trading jabs. So to be able to depict that kind of a thing on screen was or, or to just, I just can't tell you how much this process has actively helped me heal from the, the place mm-hmm. that it came from. But I don't want to get too far from the art. That was far too personal. I don't know why I went <laughs> down that particular rabbit hole. Oh, baby. <laughs> Jeeves yeah. loves the kids. It, There's nothing too personal. <laughs> but I, we are so, so proud of you. It's like, it is such a gift to hear you talk about the show in this way and like, I just completely agree. I, I don't I don't know if there's like a better thing you could have contributed to the world in like what was your first Hollywood endeavor. And this is just like a show that will save lives, period. Um oh, all the, and, and all the kids in there, I mean teams was sharing them on Instagram, the, the little kids in their Halloween costumes. It's just I was I was emotional and I had nothing to do with the show. I was just a fan. It was really unbelievable. And also in terms of storytelling and in terms of character development and in terms of advancing what what Joe was saying about advancing the essential plot. I mean, that was all that was on our minds. It's such a small story and there isn't there were deviations, but it really came down to four people grieving mm-hmm. four teens who didn't know how to name their grief and didn't know what to do about it. And each kind of was pulled in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And um. And and that was just so 
legible to me personally and to everyone in that room. And I'm so, um, I, I, and I just want to say, like, this wasn't my show. Like, I was a staff writer. Like, I was yeah. literally the bottom of the, like, the bottom rung on the ladder. But still. <laughs> bottom I- rung? <laughs> um, I'm sure you were the bottom rung. But it, <laughs> but it also just, like, changed my life in terms of, like, financial stability. And, like, I, you know, it was, a like, this was, you know, pandemic season one. And I had yeah. lost my ability to make money because I made money on the road touring as, you know, going to colleges and stuff like that. So I had no income and my roommate had left. And so I had double my rent and I didn't know how much longer I was going to be able to like, like stay. And also I didn't, I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to pack up and move because it was still, it was like early, early, early pandemic. And I was like watching what small savings I had dwindle every single month. Mm-hmm. And then in June, I got a call from Sterling on a Wednesday and he said, oh, by the way, we're putting this TV room together. Uh, we start Monday. Would you be into that? And I was oh like, my gosh. would I be into it? Unreal. You pre-diabetic bitch. What the fuck are you talking <laughs> to me about right now? <laughs> okay, wait. I want to talk about, I, I think that, that this sense of humor thing is something that also really shook me, especially in the episode that I was talking about, but just in a lot of, in just in the entire show, there are all these kind of like, like problematic quote unquote jokes um, like that, like jokes that, you know, make fun of someone's appearance or fat shaming jokes and stuff like that. And like, I think that it is again, like such a testament to res humor, but also to humor of so many different marginalized classes that is like lost in quote unquote mainstream representation um, because like, there's no nuance around the background of how these jokes function and how, you know, just as you said, like homophobic jokes, quote unquote, aren't necessarily kind of like showing that they themselves are trying to enact homophobic violence on you. It's that we're cultured in that, that like the certain, like especially historically marginalized classes are cultured into homophobia. And that is just a vehicle for, you know, sense of humor, camaraderie, shade, community, so many different mm-hmm. things. Um, that they kind of trying to spin it around and then it, it's something else. It's like part of just, uh, you know, how we live. In I want to, I mean, I like that you mentioned, oh, just one, just yeah. one second really quick. I just really want to say that I like how you mentioned shade because that's exactly what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. just like, it's fine. As long as it's funny, <laughs> you yeah, know, like exactly. cut me down. If, as long as I laugh, I'm cool with it. <laughs> yeah. And I, sorry. Uh, go for it. No, then. I was just going to say to add on that, like I was thinking of this earlier too, Teebs, while you were like sort of initially talking about like those sort of jokes and you were like, oh, I didn't like I was being ableist or I didn't know that at the time. But this is the thing sort of about these kinds of jokes and these kinds of spaces and partly why it can be so offensive when folks who are not part of these communities like weigh in on what what it is through their lens. Like we're coming from communities and backgrounds that have not only been marginalized, but have so often been invisible and been treated as invisible. And so it's like when part of the humor is you making fun of this distinctive thing about me, the first thing that's being communicated often there is I see you. I see you, I recognize you. And there's so much value in that. And then there's so much value in this idea that who you are and what you are is being treated in the same way that everyone else is being treated within the community, right? That it's like, like, oh yeah, we're all clowning each other. We're all making fun. That's what we do. And this is like one of the dynamics that I feel like is often at play in like black families too. So like when I think back on my childhood and some of that humor as well, 
that so much of the time it wasn't from a place of homophobia. It was simply a place of we all clown each other and this is who you are. And so we clown you just like we clown everybody else. And shows like this, like to, to ladder back to the point that you were making earlier is like shows like this are combating a homogeneity of representation. And what happens when a certain story is told about a group over and over and over again, it, I think people sometimes lose sight of what that quote-unquote representation is for um, and how capitalism takes these warped-ass, bitch-ass kind of like representation, <clears throat> single all the way, <clears throat> um, and they feed it back to us and like say like, oh yeah, this is like what you're supposed to be. And then like we kind of eat it up sometimes. And I think that, you know, there, there's kind of, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's this kind of insidious thing that happens in a lot of mainstream culture that like I'm very susceptible to where like, because this story of a certain kind of person has been told over and over again, we, they sell it back to us. And then we think that that is us and it's not, you know what I mean? So for like a show like Res Dogs to insist on deconstructing ideas, for example, how like ancestors kind of function and appear in the work of this show. I think that there is a, a an idea of what you think a, a ghost, an indigenous ghost or an ancestor or something like that is going to come into a certain story. And for them, for like Res Dogs to create this archetype that is like, kind of like buffoony and like not, you know, mystical, magical in the way that you might think um, is a complete 180 of like what we've seen for decades. Um, And so things like that, I think, are so, so, so um, like culture shifting. Um, And that is how we should be thinking about uh, how like certain people show up in like when we I guess, decide to represent historically marginalized classes. I have a question for you, Teams, kind of thinking about um, the the pressure of representation. You know, this is like the first show written by Indigenous people, acted by Indigenous people, crew and cast, Indigenous folks. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the fact that there's a dearth of stories. There are no stories. But then it's like this pressure that your story is going to be the first or, it, you know, it can become the problematic, quote unquote, the, the only story. Right. Or people can imagine that that's, that one story is enough. Did that change sort of how in the room you were thinking about, like, how can we make something that. Any good story has to be specific. You have to create four specific people with a specific set of circumstances. So it's by necessity to be good. It has to be small. Mm -hmm. But then it also is going to be viewed as so big. Like, did you feel that tension as you were writing? It's impossible. It's actually impossible. I can't, like, I think that's why we just imagined a very small audience. Because Mm. when you're telling one story, you're not telling 700 others. And those stories mm-hmm. deserve to be depicted and to be told as well. Mm-hmm. But so mm-hmm. it's like just by virtue of being, we're not being other things. And yeah. that's um, just going to be true for anything. That's the first thing. Anything that is like anything that is the first thing is going to not be so many other things. And mm-hmm. so many people, you know, and, and, and yes, like that, 
was is a present criticism, but it wasn't present in the room because, mm. and this is a testament to Sterling's leadership style and also this the fact that the stat, it was stacked with incredible writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say their names again, Tazba Chavez, Migzi Pensanu, Bobby Wilson, Sydney Freeland, Sterling Harjo. They, it was just, and every day was, and we had so little time to write the show. And oh, every God. day was, there were so many, people pitching stories and ideas and, and arcs for characters and stuff like that. But, but it was just, it was really great that I was so glad that we had a couple of scripts to read before pitching new stories. And then also we had their actual, the actors had been cast. So we had their tapes and when it became about character, mm-hmm. that's all it had to be. It, it like, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, we have to, we have, we have these four characters already. You know, how do we be true to them and how do we tell their story? So it didn't, so it didn't, this thing about um, like representation and like the enormity of being the first thing that wasn't on our shoulders. It was just like, how do we tell the best story with the characters that we have? And again, that was, I think just, I'm, I was so, uh, it, it was just, because of the curiosity and the determination of the people in that room. Mm-hmm. I loved how, so like, especially with like indigenous stories, but with like any sort of kind of like stories like this, where, um, you know, on like talking specifically about representation, there is like a triumph porn that kind of happens. Like if it, and if it's not a triumph porn, it's a suffering porn, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because the gaze centers whiteness or cisness or heterosexualness, the it, it is the function of like marginalized people in narratives like this usually to be inspirational. And I loved how this show was antithetical to that as fuck. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like not only are these characters so unaffected by extreme violence or extreme poverty, or it's like they're just so jaded. And like they've lived through so many things that you'll never see that when something horrible happens, they're like, yeah, okay. You know what I mean? Like it's it's very like whatever. But I also loved how the show just kind of insisted that everyone was a dirtbag, um, that no one can be trusted to do their jobs or to do something like ethically or morally, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I liked that it was so resistant to, you know, the good standing Native American kind of story that you know, any, any show might pursue if it wasn't this one. And there was just like some, there was a, a freedom in being like, Mm. okay, we're just writing Mm. for pieces of shit. Right. Like just, there was no, there was, I mean, not, not really, but, but what I mean is there wasn't the, there wasn't the pressure of creating virtuous characters. Yeah. Yeah. But there is teams, there is a moral center to the show and to the characters, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I think that's the, they're, they're dirtbags who love the fuck out of each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and like, that's obvious, you know? And I, I think you can say that that's an easy thing to achieve in writing. Um, but it's not actually an easy thing to achieve in writing and to make imperfect characters that the audience also loves and roots for and not to spoil the end of season one, but wants to be together. I mean, you know, the audience wants these kids to come through this together mm-hmm. and and to to love one another uh, and and that's like really beautiful that it it just it it feels really like how fucking trash bag human beings are yeah and it also the the um it wasn't lost on me the collaborative nature of what we were doing and 
who the kids ended up, their personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it was, it's so fun. It has been such a fun um, experience of like watching an episode that I didn't write, but that like had a thing that I pitched. Mm-hmm. Like, uh-huh. um, like Leon, uh, uh, Willie Jack's dad, Initially, mm-hmm. he wasn't related to. They weren't related to Daniel, and I was like, yep, "Let's yep. make him her uh, his uncle." Yep, and yep. that will give us a little more emotional stakes in yeah. their relationship and this thing that they do every year. And that Daniel probably did it with them. How about that? And that this is the first year he hasn't been on the hunt, and that gives that thing a little more, you know, juice. And and also mm-hmm. just like um, having parts of the California episode, and then there are parts of my, the episode I wrote, episode one hundred four with Bobby Wilson. Um, and there are, are things in that episode that were, came, were, came from other people's yeah. voices and that we were able to kind of, it was truly, truly collaborative, even though some of our names are on it and some of us aren't. Um, and I just want to say also, like, my, my favorite thing that I got was um, I, I'm the one who pitched that Rita had many different personalities that she would listen to. And that initially, like, my idea was, my concept was that there was, like, this council of Rita's that there were like Rita's like in a writer. Like we were actually Rita's <laughs> writer's room was in her head, kind of like Herman's head a little bit. And that like, oh God, she yes. was just like, I need pitches. What do we do with this guy? And the realities of shooting in COVID meant they couldn't be five and all different outfits. Cause you, you film those separately. So it just was, we got mm. two. Um, but it was because, because of something that had been established in the pilot, which is that like, we've established this idea that people's, like when the when the truck driver talks to Bear, and that's the that's the um, personification of his guilt. That we have something of that magic, and like why why don't we do more with that? And I was like, let's just say Rita has a bunch in her head, and everyone really liked that. Sterling really liked that yeah. idea, and so I got to write it in there. Um, uh, and like the keeps, go ahead, no go finish. Oh, and I was gonna say also like the. I will never hear the end of it because in my episode, Bear's dad is named Punkin Lusty and my dad is named Punkin. That's what they call him on the res because he has a big old pumpkin head. And like, <laughs> that wasn't my choice. Like, Sterling had already named that character because he's like, we all got a pumpkin. And I was that's like, crazy. oh, that's my dad, though. He's <laughs> never going to live it down. <laughs> oh, my God. That's crazy. That's amazing. Um, seems the moment when Daniel's uncle gives him the jacket that night, I mean, mm. just... You know, it's sort of like it's this extension of care and 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 community and family, but not the one that he needed to save his life. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. that was one of oh, that jacket killed me. It's I we we were going to do something with that jacket in season two and ended up throwing that idea away. But <laughs> I love how the show balances strikes that balance between like heart like kind of heart tugging, Mm -hmm. but also is like primarily a comedy. I think Mm -hmm. it's like the perfect kind of um, like balance. Um, So we found out that there is officially a season two. I know you're in the writer's room right now. What can you tell us about what's going to happen next? Uh, I can tell you I've signed an NDA, actually, so I can't Damn say it. anything. <laughs> Damn but, um, you know, the world gets a little bigger. And mm. we get to see more people who dot the landscape of the village, mm-hmm. the reservation. And um, we've written it. And we go back into the room Monday. And we're going to kind of, I guess, iron things out. I'm not quite sure yeah. what it is that we're going to do. But 
Uh, the 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 writers room got bigger. This mm. the order got bigger. Um, How many episodes? I actually don't know if I can say that either. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but but it's it, but it's they gave us a little more to play with. But there was also mm-hmm. more work to do because, like I said, half of the season half of season one was written before we got in the room, right. and this one was an arduous task of writing from the ground up whole new episodes while still listening to the characters while still, you know, giving them a little more to do maybe, but also giving them um, moments to resolve and to continue to resolve the grief of, of their, their friend's death. Cause it's not like it goes away. It's not like it's like, cause that was yeah. really important with this, with the, the season finale. It's like, they're not magically better it's not yeah. like, you know, yeah. they, something happened and they did the thing and they got better. It's like that's not what actually happens. And, and, and that a death resonates through a community. And so we're going to see more of the community, I think. Amazing. I cannot fucking wait. Mm, I'm feeling full, but, like, I can fit one more thing inside of me. Dead knows how I feel. Uh. And uh, I believe, Fran, you're going to put the cherry on our top this week? Mm-hmm. That's right. I am here to talk about another show that does pretty amazing on the representation level. It's called Sort Of on HBO Max. Have any of y'all heard about this show yet? Really? Okay, so you should do a quick Googles. But the gist is um, it's a quick little series, like a sitcom kind of show about a trans non-binary Pakistani like nanny slash bartender who is kind of at this like emotional crux in their life and trying to decide what they kind of want to do and whether they're going to move. And um, I'm not going to lie, I really judged the show before I saw it. Um, the majority of the people that had been recommending it to me were cis. And I think that in a post them.us world, um, a lie. Yeah, sorry, I went there. Um, there is just like a really kind of bizarre um, homogenization, as we were talking about earlier, of like representation of non-binary people in the mainstream that is so centered around pronouns and like just a very kind of boring idea of like what gender non-conforming people can be in the mainstream um and so it took me a while to watch it (laughs) and I but when I finally did I loved it and to be honest like I would say that and this will really get all of you but definitely Teebs is that the show really felt like kind of like a brown Daria kind of show Like, the show had this kind of, like, unaffected protagonist that, you know, was really jaded by life, really doesn't know what to make of, like, the miserable things that are happening to them, um, but does it in a very funny way, um, in a kind of, like, gothy way, you know? And I just love that about this character. Um, The show itself is really disinterested, honestly, in the question of non-binary identity. Actually, like the protagonist pronouns um, uh, are really only used like a few times. And outside of that, it's it's not something that really comes into the fabric of the show. There are like some hijinks involving their mom kind of finding out that they're gender non-conforming and like what that means to them. But it's not really like what the show hinges on. And I just think that's so beautiful. But on top of that, like, you know, it's about like, 
It's about sex and relationships. It's about, you know, deciding whether or not you're going to abandon your life because your life is shit and emotional responsibility to people in your life that you are not like are, are there and they're in your life and you like having them in your life. But you're actually even if they are like maybe your dearest friends, you actually don't know if, if they're right for you. They just kind of what you have. Um, there's so many different elements about this that are so real to me. And, you know. I don't talk about this a lot, but like as someone who is non-binary, at least um, if that's the language that we have for it, you know, that's works for now. Um, I'm someone who, you know, my gender has been an ongoing project for, I mean, since I was a kid, but like definitely for the last few years, I talked a lot about this on my other show, like a virgin. Um, but like, I feel like um, there should, should just be more spaces where, um, gender non-conforming people are allowed to just kind of like not know what their identity is or not know who they are. And the premise of this show sort of is that the character is kind of sort of sure about who they are. Um, but kind of, I mean, this is a, well, I guess I won't say this cause it, it, I won't say it cause it's a little bit of a spoiler, but there is sort ofness on their identity that comes to fruition in a really beautiful way. And I feel like it was like something that I had never seen on screen when it comes to the experience of gender non-conforming people. So mm-hmm. I'm just really grateful for a show oh. like this, especially to creators like this. Yeah, I, I love what you said, Fran, about the 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 resistance to to knowing, the sort ofness, mm-hmm. the, the the like if, if if identity is the hinge of your politics, but you're not sure about your identity or like no words yet describe you or whatever, it's very hard to know what to do or how to build community or to just be like I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm sister. Tra- Honestly, I feel like I don't know if I'm sister trans. Like, I, I don't. Neither of that. Neither of them feels like home to me. And it's just mm-hmm. so I kind of just avoid talking about it because I don't know what to say. And I, I wish that I think in our in our thirst for political representation and safety, we've we've had to say we're sure about who I am, even though some of us aren't. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's okay to yeah. not be sure. And, like, capitalism forces us to label these things, to, like, have coming out announcements, to have, you know, time covers and, like, you know, photo shoots announcing, you know, what our new identity is. And, like, that is, if that's your process, like, go off. Like, I'm proud of you. But, like, yeah, I'm also, like, trying to figure out where I am on the trans spectrum and feeling like the word non-binary, um, as, as you know, accurate as it is, has a kind of cultural baggage And Mm -hmm. an image of what people think being non-binary is in their heads, as I said in a post-them-to-us era, that is just not really who I am. And and this show doesn't really use the word non-binary, I don't think. I don't don't know if it's ever used once, actually. Um, And I thought that that was, there's something in all of that where I was like, it's realer to talk about what you are than to talk about exactly in one label what Mm -hmm. you are Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it like talk about your you can talk about your experience without having these finite guardrails Mm -hmm. around it that come with the cultural baggage of other non-binary people or other trans people etc um in the mainstream you know yeah and it's hard because Um, you know when you find a word or a word is produced and you know you can feel kind of comfort in definition but then mm -hmm. also like 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 the vulnerability of it as well Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I remember when Denez Smith wrote more tomboy than boy and I was like that's me right there. That is mm-hmm. me right there. I'm just a tough mm-hmm. ass bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I yeah. think so. Anything, I was just going to say anything that's out there that sort of allows for there to be space for people to be anywhere in this process. Because one thing that we know, but that we, I feel like we don't talk about a lot is how dynamic and by dynamic, I mean, in motion, gender and gender identity can be for so many people. Um, anything that sort of lives in that space and doesn't use it as just a transitional space, which um, is so often the case for so many people that it like is where they want to live and where they are is just really valuable and really rare. It's a little bit of a unicorn. So all y'all thoughts now have to watch sort of on HBO Max. Another thing for your docket. Maybe we can add it to our Salt Lake City um, weekly viewing. <laughs> it's, I mean, listen, these days with the Omicron, I am not leaving the house. So the more shows I have to watch, the better. It's the only thing keeping me here. <laughs> this episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our new home at Stitcher. Our producer is the red sauce giving us acid reflux, Alexandra Park. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe, rate, and review us five stars on iTunes, or we close the brioche suisse for good. I am Tommy Teebs Pico. You can find me at Hey Teebs, H E Y T E B S, on Instagram because I deleted Twitter and it was very difficult for me to say brioche suisse, by the way. You did it perfectly, you did. baby. You mwah, did. Mwah. Très bien. Uh, I am Joseph Osmondson. You can find me at www.josephosmondson.com where you can, as always, pre order my book, which is still sadly relevant, uh, Virology. I'm Fran. You can find me at Fran Squishco on social media. And please go give my new podcast, Like a Version, a stream. Um, I do it with Rose Damio, and it is so fun to do each week. And I'm Den Michelle Norris, and you can find me on social media at The Den Michelle. And also, someone please slide into my DMs and reopen my nearly closed brioche suisse. <laughs> No. <laughs> find us on Instagram as Gay Sluts Who Read and join us on Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod. And finally, send your questions, thoughts, concerns, and dick, dick pics to thoughts <laughs> at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thoughts spelled how? T A H O T. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 